0: Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes.
1: Welcome to the show. So when you think about work, does the word joy come up? Joy is not really something most of us think about or even experience in relation to work. I mean, work can be a grind. Most of us go through the motions of work and we watch the clock so we can get home to a nice meal and maybe an episode of Mad Men. But joy, joy can be the last thing we experience emotionally. Well, my guest today has something different to say about the experience of joy in the workplace. Richard Sheridan has written two books on joy, Joy Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love, and his latest, Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. So, when when Rich Sheridan is not writing mind blowing books on leadership and work culture or traveling the world, speaking to the world's biggest companies, he leads Menlo Innovations, a custom software design and development company, as their co founder and CEO, or as Rich prefers to be called, the chief storyteller of Menlo. The company, which is based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, They've won several awards for business excellence, and they've been featured on the cover of Inc., Entrepreneur, Forbes, and New York magazines. And by the way, Menlo gets visitors from all over the world wanting to know what the secrets are to their world-famous culture. So if you're a listener and you want to visit Menlo, there's a good chance that Richard Sheridan will be your personal tour guide. You'll note from this conversation that one of the most counterintuitive parts of Richard's book is the chapter on love, which we're going to dig into. So let's get started. Here's my conversation with Richard Sheridan. So let's jump right into uh, your latest book, which is Chief Joy Officer. I've got so one here
2: too. <laughs> oh,
1: boom. Perfect. Perfect timing. So if somebody asked you, Rich, what is this book really about? What would you tell
2: them? You know, if you remember back to Joy, Inc., there was a chapter in the book called Growing Leaders, Not Bosses. And my uh, publisher encouraged me as I went out into the world to speak about the lessons of Joy, Inc. Um, They said, listen, listen to the questions that people have. And that will probably inform your next book. And a lot of people, after I would speak, would get pretty excited. they Probably want to carry some of the lessons home with them. And they would often ask, where do I get started? How would I begin? What if I can't change the mind of the people above me? And I tried to encourage them along the way that the first place where you need to change is you. You know, I had to make a change. I had to change the way I thought about leadership. I had to change the way I behaved as a leader I had to diminish those boss-like characteristics where uh, I wanted to be the guy with, you know, the smartest guy in the room with the quickest answer that everybody would run off and say, oh, thank God, Rich is here. And that's really what led to this book was how do you develop a leadership system that doesn't rely on hierarchy or authority? Hmm. So to me, it's almost like uh,
1: it's a Joy Inc. part two, in a sense, from the leadership side of of things and describing what a a joyful leader does. So tracking with that line of thought, I think it's fair to say that we all want to experience joy at work. But what I was thinking is that what joy means to one leader may not necessarily translate to another leader working for another company. So a two-part question. How do you define joy as the CEO of Menlo? And then the second part of that question in a
2: broader sense for anyone in a leadership role, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, here at Menlo, we have a very explicit definition. It's kind of fun. It actually often generates smiles and laughs from people when I tell them that our mission from day one really is to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And everybody looks at me (laughs) and laughs and thinks, boy, you picked a big one. And we did. There's no question. And our goal inside of that, since our founding, was to return joy to technology. We fundamentally believe that the business of writing software, creating software, the work that happens to the people who are behind me here that you can see working away, that this work should get out into the world and delight the people it's intended to serve. And when I think of the broader question for those out there in your audience, I would encourage them, if they're going to embark on a joyful journey, they should think hard about two questions that seem like they'd be easy to answer. But I would caution them against picking the easy answers to these two questions. One is, who do you serve and what would delight look like for them? And I can go into deeper detail on that for us. But I would encourage all of your leaders to think about that. Rich, what is the enemy of joy? That's an easy one. If I was to write the opposite book of joy, Inc., it would be called fear, Inc. (laughs) If I was to meet your counterpart, they would write a book called Humans Last. And we'd have like a Dilbert-like episode here where the pointy-haired boss is doing all the stupid stuff and (laughs) Catbird is running HR and all that kind of stuff. One of the features of uh, a joyful leader is, is scary for a lot
1: of people. You talk about authenticity right off the bat and the need to bring your whole self to work and how so many of us wear masks at work and we, we hide from who we really are behind these masks. And I'm going to read a paragraph for our readers that kind of made an impact on me, Rich. Here it goes. From page 26, I believe authenticity is less about putting on display the full range of emotions we experience every day and more about sharing our masks so our teams can see who we really are. How many of us are one person at home and completely different person at work? This may be the biggest danger of the modern workplace that we are practically forced to live a lie most of our waking hours and then we go home to self-medicate literally or figuratively to avoid looking at our side
2: of the mask
1: Ooh. so what do you think people are afraid of
2: well i think the natural fear in the workplace for any employee is that you know something bad's going to happen to them they're going to lose their jobs they're going to miss the next promotion they're going to be overlooked for some key assignment or plum assignment and I actually think that there's a brand of management that was probably taught throughout the decades over the last 50 or 60 years, where that was seen as a good thing. You know, let's, let's motivate our people with fear. Let's let them know we're cutting the 10% lowest bar of all the people. So we're going to rank, force rank you at the end of each year. And the lowest 10% are going to get shuffled out the door to go find their next job. Think about the culture that would create inside of an organization, a culture that isn't about me actually contributing more, actually being a better uh, employee or staff member or the one with the brightest ideas. I just have to look better than you. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to lie. I'm going to cheat. I'm (laughs) going to just make you look bad every chance I get. I'll probably do it not in front of you. But over in the coffee room, I'll throw you under the bus just because I don't have to run faster than the norm. I just have to run faster than you. And as long as I run faster than 10% of people in the company, I get to stay. And that creates a very debilitating culture. And I think that's where a lot of these seeds of wearing a false mask to work, not being the person we are at home at work, and it probably isn't that way every single minute of every single day, but if that's the way we are most of the time, we're going to be pretty miserable. So a moment of truth for you, or I should say a
1: moment of authenticity for you right now. So look back to your earlier days in your journey towards becoming a joyful leader or a servant leader. What masks did you wear? You know, I think... This is, yeah.
2: <laughs> looking at your own mask is really hard because I'd like to think I'm a nice guy. I'd like to think I'm a fair person, a humble person that I would give other people room. But I'm sure that I tried to be seen as the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I tended to see, you know, opportunities to insert my voice uh, ahead of everyone else, just to make sure it was my voice that was being heard. and the sort of the rubber met the road for me when I brought my eight-year-old daughter to work when I was just a newly minted VP. It was one of those, take your kids to work day. And she sat at my task table watching the VP work all day, which I can't imagine a more boring thing for an eight-year-old kid to do. And she was smart enough to realize that it was probably going to be boring. And so she brought in her backpack and her coloring books and her crayons and her stickers and at the end of the day, I said, what do you think, Sarah? How did it go today? And she said, well, Dad, what I learned today was that you're really important. And I'm like, oh, no, what did she see? And in that case, what she said to me was that no one seemed to be able to make a decision without asking me first. What she saw is this parade of people coming through my office all day long, asking me questions and looking for answers. They didn't come with a solution. They just came with a question and stood there until I gave them the answer and they shuffled off with, you know, everything to do. And what she, she was very proud of her dad. She saw this guy who, obviously, the smartest guy here. And that's why he had the big office and the big title and all that sort of thing. But I was mortified. I realized I had created a team that couldn't move faster than me. And the only way to scale me was overtime and spending time away from the family I loved. And I didn't want that. And that was a clanging symbol moment for me. That was a moment where I realized, oh, I get it. I need to change. I need to take a different approach. I need to let my team lead without me. Rich, let's transition to another part of a joyful leader. You say they
1: pursue systems, not bureaucracy. And there's a cool illustration of systems thinking, uh, courtesy of your kid's pediatrician, Dr. John Gall. Now, I'm going to go back in time here because we're talking about 30 years or so ago or more. Now, you didn't know that Dr. Gall was a world expert on the topic until just recently. Share that story and tell us about the intersection between systems thinking and joy.
2: Yeah, when I talk about human organizations, I relate it to airplanes and that there's this lift of human energy, just like a plane is lifted off the ground by the shape of the wings, but there's a countervailing force, a weight that holds us down, a weight that drags an airplane back to the ground. And I look at human systems kind of similarly in that weight is the weight of bureaucracy. And the way that manifests itself in a lot of organizations is there's a lot of waiting, right? There's waiting for a decision to be made, waiting for an answer to be had, waiting for a sign-off, an approval, a committee to meet and make a decision. And And this kind of weight on an organization just robs the energy of your team. And after a while, they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, I don't have to work very hard here because, you know, nothing will move forward anyways. The decision will go against uh, whatever I'm thinking. And so you just start getting to that point that many organizations do where 60 or 70% of your teams are disengaged at work. And the trouble is life carries on and there's all this chaos going on around you, but you can't deal with it other than firefighting. And that was my life. I was in this chaos to bureaucracy kind of mode for uh, the middle part of my career when my wife and I started having a family. She was pregnant with our first child and she said, Rich, we have to go to the pediatrician for an interview. I'm like, why do you have to go to the pediatrician for an interview? Are they interviewing us, the parents, to see if we're worthy or are we interviewing him and what would we look for? And so I was smart enough to just tag along. And we go into Dr. Gall's office and he's looking at the two of us. And um, he says, what do you know about your child? I'm like, what? I look at my wife and and I looked down at her belly and said, doctor, you do know the baby hasn't been born yet. And he said, yeah, but you know some things about your child already. And he said, for example, does music calm your child? And my wife picks up on this immediately. She said, yeah, whenever I play the piano, she settles down. Whenever I eat, she settles down. And already Dr. Gall is starting to teach me something about my unborn child. And I'm just fascinated with this guy. We show up for the first well-baby appointment. And I know what to expect because I remember even my own pediatric appointments and most of my doctor's appointments to this day. And they all look just like my work life, chaos and bureaucracy, forms, and snotty-nosed kids running everywhere. And we go into his office and there's nobody. It's just my wife and I and our newborn daughter, Megan. I thought, well, this is a little weird. And then he comes out exactly at the prescribed time, 10 o'clock, and he says, Megan Sheridan, which I thought was just cute because my daughter's only <laughs> a month old. And we go into his office and he starts telling us how he's going to give her shots without tears, which I thought, well, that's impossible. And he did. He starts telling us about how she will interpret sounds she's hearing as syllables and she'll move her fingers to every syllable she hears for about the first year. You know how when she throws her hands up over her head like this, and it means stop communicating with me. I'm in overload. She'll start crying next if you don't listen to that. And I thought, okay, this guy's amazing. And so I went to every single appointment I could. And every single time, Marcel, it was the same. Nobody in the waiting room. And I thought, this is the most amazing doctor ever. Why is he such a bad businessman? This place should be full of patients. Even the unexpected. Earaches and fever, you know, the appointment you called in the morning says, Yeah, come in about one this afternoon and I'll see you. Still no patients in the office. Maybe one other couple with their child. I like, thought, boy, this is really weird. And it haunted me because right after that, I go back to my chaos and bureaucracy at work, and I kept thinking to myself, is this guy really a bad businessman, or did he figure something out? Because I need to figure something out. So that thought rolled around in my head every time we went to an appointment. But, you know, you're in the doctor's office. You don't stop and say, hey, can I have a business discussion with you, Dr. Gall? And so, you know, kids grow up. He retires. He moves off to Walker, Minnesota. I continue my bureaucratic life. And it wasn't until I was writing Joy, Inc. that I thought back to those pediatric appointments with my daughter. And I thought, John Gall, John Gall. And you know what? I wonder... I should have asked him. I should have taken him out to lunch. I should. But wait a minute. He might still be here. He might still be alive. This is, you know, literally, uh, this is like 2013. It's like 30 years after my my oldest was born. And I Google him, expecting to see all these references around pediatrics and that. And what came back blew me away. Because Dr. John Gall is famous in our industry. Famous for what's called Gaul's Law. And what's fun is we have Gall's Law printed on the wall in this conference room. It says, a complex system that works is invariably found to have evolved from a simple system that worked. A complex system designed that way from scratch can never be made to work. You must start over with a working simple system. John Gall was probably one of the world's leading systems thinkers And I had him right in the palm of my hand several times a year, and I never interacted with him. And I corrected that mistake, and I went to see him in his home. I was the last visitor in his home before he passed away, and we spent a delightful weekend together, reminiscing about those pediatric appointments, but spending far more time talking about systems. And, in fact, it was a system that he used that kept the chaos out of his office. And it confirmed for me that one of the most important things we can do as joyful leaders is to think about the systems that keep chaos out of our world, that keep the bureaucracy at bay so we can lift the human energy of our team, keep the weight of our human aircraft as light as possible. So that then when we apply the thrust of what I call purpose and eliminate as much as possible the drag of fear, we can actually fly to heights and distances that were unimaginable. Mm. I.
1: imaginable am just dumbfounded by that story it's so profound and rich speaking of rich the most counterintuitive part of the book I think for me is is the chapter you wrote on love mm. well maybe not for me obviously because I'm actually writing a book or in the process of a manuscript with the premise that uh, the best leaders lead through love in action and we're talking about leveraging that in a business sense now You use a famous passage, of all places, from the Bible to illustrate your point that loving leadership really brings out the best in people. Now, at the risk of sounding like I just broke open a Bible study group on my podcast, let me just read the passage in context, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. It says here, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So regardless of whatever your religious background is, or if you're a-religious or atheistic Do these principles
2: work for leadership in the business sense and are they universal? Yeah. I would often open a lot of my keynotes after joy Inc came out saying, Hey, I released a business book to the world that has the words joy and love on the cover. And I wondered if the world would take me seriously. And then I doubled down on that bet in my next book, put the word joy on the cover again, and then have an entire chapter on love. And it's funny, that chapter, I was, I inched my way towards it. I wanted, the original title of the chapter was Leaders Are Gentle. I used the um, the Aesop fable, The North Wind and the Sun, to talk about how gentleness wins every time. And I kept, I tried to write this chapter and it kept going towards love and it kept going towards love. And, and finally, I grabbed that 1 Corinthians passage, which is a famous one, and it's used in all kinds of ceremony, wedding ceremonies, religious or not, it's just such a great passage about something that connects us humans together so profoundly. I ran an experiment and I took out the word love and I put in leaders and I thought, how would that work? And as I walked through it, I thought, oh yeah, this works. If you think about You know, if you even go back, maybe for your listeners, because I don't have the passage in front of me, and just substitute the word either leaders or leadership in that same passage, wouldn't we want those kind of leaders in our organization? Wouldn't we want to be those kind of leaders? Wouldn't we, if we're not, wouldn't we aspire to be those kind of leaders? And shouldn't we be pursuing that for ourselves and for the people around us? which of the love principles best describes
1: you? And how does that give you, I hate to use a business term, but how
2: does that give you competitive advantage? If you think about the biggest challenge that organizations face today, it is that disengagement statistic that that needle hasn't moved for decades, right? It's 60 or 70% of people are disengaged at work. And my simple hypothesis is, could we here at Menlo and could we encourage others to think about it the same? Just flip this statistic, not eliminate disengagement. I don't think you ever get to perfection ever in any human pursuit. But what if you just went from 30-70 to 70-30? Think of what you could accomplish. Think of the weight that would be lifted off your organization if 70% of your people are coming in every day engaged, actively engaged at work. They're bringing a spring in their step. They're bringing in kind of a, a light heart for the work that they bring in that dedication and that human energy rather than leaving it at home. Think what we could accomplish. These are the same employees who work for you every day. They're already in the payroll. They're in the system. They have a desk. They have a computer. They have a chair. They know how to get to work. They have a place they park. They have a key to the office. And they could come in every single day engaged in a fundamentally different way. Think about the value that would bring to your organization. Think how much more speed you would get, how much more output you would get, how much more quality you would get, how much better reputation you would have, not only with your customers, but with others you're trying to recruit into your organization. I mean, there's a supposedly some kind of talent war out there that everybody's fighting for the best people, whatever that means in their context. Well think of you create an environment where people are flocking to you they want to be part of you because of what they've learned about you through what they hear from the others who work for you.
1: Hmm. Rich, is there a favorite part of the book that you can say ah oh, this is my favorite it's you know that you had fun writing because it just
2: spoke to your heart. You know, I have become convinced that one of the most powerful qualities that a leader can bring to the table to really guide a team for the long term and instill some values that carry through from one end of the day to the other, one end of the month and the quarter and the year to another is storytelling. And I loved writing the chapter on storytelling because I got to tell one of my favorite first stories from a time with my dad when I was just 10 years old. And I was so happy <laughs> that I was able to get that story in the book. But I will tell you, my cards, as you said at the beginning, I think the, the title I, they most delightfully is the title Chief Storyteller. And that means I'm not the only storyteller here. I am one of a team of storytellers. I may be the best one only because I get to do it more often than the rest of the team. But that is a quality as old as humankind. If you want to talk about humans first, Think about how humans bound themselves together in small groups and communities and tribes and later in nations. It was through storytelling. This is what binds us together as people, is we curate our stories. We tell our best stories over and over again. And those stories may be stories of negative things that have happened in the past. You know, if you think of the agile software development community, they talk about what, all the bad stuff that happened in the waterfall days. And now they can talk about some really amazing things that have happened in the future. This is how we drive our values deep into the hearts of the people around us is through storytelling.
1: This has been such a deep conversation. I'm loving it. But we have to wrap up. So I'm going to transition to our last two questions. Maybe I'll sneak in the next one there. But as we come down to the wire. I want to get into the heart of Rich Sheridan and talk about the things that matter to you the most. So what's really tugging at your heart right
2: now that you want our listeners to know? (laughs) Well, there's two things that tug at my heart right now, and their names are Miller and Hayden, two delightful little granddaughters who just light up the room every time I see them. I get pictures of them every single day often FaceTiming. So there's no question for me, Marcel, that family is of utmost importance. And I will say that family drove a lot of the decisions I made in my trough of disillusionment days where I was spending a lot of time away from them in that chaotic bureaucratic world and coming home late, having accomplished absolutely nothing and realizing that the thing that mattered most to me was literally like slipping out of my grasp because Time was passing and it will pass regardless of whether we're having joy in our work lives or the opposite. And so the thing that drives me is I want to be a good example to my kids. I don't just want to be a good dad. I think I'm a pretty darn good dad. But what I want to do is show them that it is possible in their work lives to have the kind of work life that everyone dreams of. And I've gotten that place. I absolutely have. I am blessed beyond measure. And I know it. And I know I'm very fortunate to have gotten to a place that most people didn't, don't get to go to. And I'm that's why I'm sharing this message with the world. So hopefully I can get a few others across that same line that I was able to cross. But for me to be able to demonstrate and by example to my children that it is possible to have a joyful work life is something that's very important to me. I would almost say that that was the answer to my next question. I
1: don't know if you can top that, but to bring this conversation home, what is one thing you would like people to absolutely walk away from
2: here today that will make a true difference in their lives? I think that the story I love that I tell in the book is a story about Mike at the McDonald's in Detroit Metro Airport. It's one of my weaknesses. I I stop there when I'm flying across the country. And, you know, I stop in and grab a quarter pounder with cheese a French fries and a Coke. And I'm rushing, right? Because I'm trying to get to my flight. And here's this guy in one of the most relationless places in one of the largest corporations on the planet. And he's hustling around the room, cleaning up after all these people who aren't paying much attention to what they're leaving behind. And he looks you in the eyes like, how's it going? You having a good day? Have a safe flight. Can I get you anything? Can I get you a napkin? And I'm like, this is remarkable. I mean, this guy could have just stuck to his job. Just, you know, just went around, cleared the tables. He didn't have to be nice to me. He didn't have to make eye contact with me. He certainly didn't have to interact with me. And I wouldn't have thought worse of him if he hadn't offered to go get me a napkin if I needed one. And I thought, what a remarkable energy to bring to work. And I thought, Mike's an amazing guy, and they're lucky to have him. And then the next time I'm there, he's not there. And there's this young kid. He's pulling out these garbage bags out of the back, probably to take him to the dumpster. And he looks at me, he goes, how's it going? Are you having a good day? Have a safe flight. Can I get you anything? Can I get you a napkin? And I'm like, Pow! how do you do this? I mean, this is a big Donald's in a busy airport where most of these people you'll never see again. And they're delivering this. And the message, two messages I want to leave your audience with. One is." The stuff we talk about that I talk about in the book is largely free. It doesn't cost a thing. It doesn't cost Mike anything extra to look me in the eye and wish me a safe flight and ask me if I need it. So, a lot of this kind of stuff we can do to improve the lives of ourselves and those we serve is free. It doesn't cost mm-hmm. a thing. And the other thing, and this is perhaps most important for your listeners because you know, I get it. I'm a CEO. People, oh, you're the CEO. Or if you're the president or something, you can do stuff uh, that I can't do. And, no, Mike, he's down at the lowest levels inside of an organization that's down at the lowest levels. And he can bring this kind of joy to where he works. But the point is, you can start from anywhere and you can do it. And it doesn't have to cost a lot. And you can make a change starting tomorrow. And it can be a tiny one and have big impact for the right people around you. Just when people are walking in or at your office, just look them in the eye and say, good morning, Marcel. How are you doing this morning? That's all it takes. Start there. Mm. Rich, you are the embodiment of
1: a true, joyous leader. And you are authentic. You are humble. And you are truly human. He is Rich Sheridan, folks, and he is the chief storyteller of Menlo Innovations. And his new book is Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. It's been an honor and a blast. We need to do it again. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for
2: having me, Marcelo. It's been great.
0: There's a dramatic shift taking place in workplaces around the world. It's a rapidly growing movement called the Humans First Club change is happening bigger and faster than any time in history. For business to flourish through this dynamic time, it's time to trash the old school command and control mindset and put people at the center of business. It's time to put humans first. Live events with a growing online community is driving change throughout the globe. It's time for your voice, your ideas for a brighter future. Join us now at humansfirst.club. That's humansfirst.club. Your time has come. You belong here.
1: So, after thinking about what my takeaway is, I thought about giving you one overarching takeaway from this stimulating conversation with Richard Sheridan. First of all, Rich's level of authenticity is rare for a CEO, and I so appreciated his candor. Now, the thing that drives Rich as a leader, he said, is that he wants to be a good example to his kids. He wants to show them that it is possible in their work lives to have the kind of work life that everyone dreams of. And Rich has created the conditions for that work life at Menlo, where people experience this kind of joy that he writes about every single day. And that's why he shares this message with the world. That's why he has written his books. And that's why he opens up Menlo for tours where people fly in from all over the world. It's so that people can see firsthand what a culture of care, joy, and love looks like in the real world. See, Richard Sheridan wants people to know that it is possible to have a joyful work life. This is something that's very important to Rich. And it's also very important to me as well, which is why I do this every week through the Love in Action podcast. So join me next week when I have another candid conversation with none other than Bob Chapman, the CEO and chairman of Barry Way Miller. In an article that I wrote for Inc. Magazine two years ago that listed the top 10 servant leader CEOs in the world, I ranked Bob Chapman number three. On behalf of Richard Sheridan and my wonderful production team at One Stone Creative, who make me sound all oh, so good every week, thank you, ladies. I'm Marcel Schwantes. See you next time.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.